Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading's on page 1213. It's James chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away, even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray together as we stand. Father God, we do indeed thank you for your precious word that can uh, divide uh, bone and flesh, cuts right to the heart. And yet, Father, we know how stubborn our hearts are to such a word. And so, Father, we pray that tonight, as we have just sung, that you would indeed break through all of those defences, knowing how committed you are to our good, knowing your word is spoken for that good. Uh, We pray, Father, that tonight uh, we would humbly receive it. And we pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, please uh, uh, turn back in your Bibles to James uh, chapter 1. And we're in uh, our second week of uh, this series. It's page 1213. And uh, we've read, um, Jill read for us just before uh, 1 to 25. We're going to be zooming in on uh, verses 9 to 25, and especially verses 22 uh, to 25. That's where we're going to be focused uh, tonight as we go along. It's James chapter 1, page 1213. Uh, as you're finding that, let me tell you uh, probably my worst uh, moment as a father thus far in uh, nine and a bit years. It was some years ago, it was here in Fullwood after a, a Sunday morning service. Uh, Liz and I uh, and the children uh, had uh, begun the journey home, uh, walking along Canterbury Avenue, about to turn into, I think it's Chorley Lane or whatever it is, at uh, the back there. And we, we got uh, into conversation with someone else just around the corner and Finn ran ahead. Uh, around the corner down Chorley Lane and eventually we turned around as well looking for him and he disappeared. Now uh, at first you're thinking oh well he's probably just down the way a little bit and we didn't worry too much but seconds turned into minutes no sign of Finn and we started to think the worst. Uh, Eventually rounding up some other people who are on their way home from church and uh, people frantically looking everywhere down as far as Forge Dam and uh, the co-op everywhere we could possibly look no sign of Finn. And then eventually, uh, I doubled back through uh, the graveyard and uh, found uh, Finn as I I sort of came back up Chorley Lane into the graveyard. At the very bottom corner of the graveyard, there is my son running as fast as I've ever seen him run, running around and around in circles in sheer panic, yelling at the top of his voice, lost, uh, helpless, uh, desperate. Uh, As soon as I saw my boy, my heart melted. It is a fearful thing, isn't it? Uh, to go from a situation of complete comfort and security and familiarity, there he was just walking home, as we always do, to suddenly be adrift from all the normal moorings, all the normal security, suddenly gone, and you are completely lost. Well, as we look at James uh, together uh, this evening, that is the situation of those this letter is written to. I suspect often uh, with the scriptures, uh, we think they were written in a lab to uh, theoretical people, but that's not the case at all. Here is people uh, going through a circumstance uh, a lot worse than Finn's. Uh, This is a letter, as we saw uh, last time we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, written to Jewish people in Jerusalem who had heard the news of the gospel, uh, heard the glorious news of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and come to believe Uh, They had become, if you like, a holy huddle in Jerusalem and it was great. You read the early chapters of Acts and life in the early church was, well, spectacularly good. Uh, They were taught by the apostles, enjoying uh, rich fellowship, uh, meals together, uh, shared material wealth, great times of prayer, the the Lord adding to their number daily. Uh, But then over time the mood in Jerusalem changed. 
As the gospel began to take its grip on Jerusalem, the rich and powerful of Jerusalem took their grip on the believers. Uh, Going, we're told in Acts, from house to house, dragging Christians out of their houses, into prison and even to death. Uh, The persecution became so intense, so unrelenting, that many of these early believers were forced to flee, uh, fleeing Jerusalem, fleeing into the surrounding nations, lost, alone, adrift from all the moorings, the normal moorings of church life in Jerusalem that they had so loved. And so James writes to them, He himself still back in Jerusalem, a survivor of the persecution at at this stage, but they get him eventually. He writes to his now sort of scattered church that have been blown out into the nations, tossed about by trial, under huge pressure, and he writes to them with tender love. He keeps calling them my dear brothers. He writes with great urgency. And he writes, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, with a very clear purpose. James writes this short letter to these battered and bewildered believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, calling them to keep going, to persevere in faith, even in the midst of this world that they were a part of, even under intense trial. And why? Would you remember it last week? We saw it there in chapter 1, verse 4. You see, through all these things they were facing, all the ups and downs, all the twists and turns, all the trials... God was moving them towards his gloriously good purpose for them. Chapter 1, verse 4, he was working through all of these things to make them mature, complete, whole, healthy, not lacking anything. He was working through all of these things to make them humans who were fully alive, lacking for nothing. And as we listen into this uh, intimate letter to his congregation now scattered, as believers ourselves in Jesus Christ, we too can take heart in this call to persevere. Because uh, the world that James describes in this letter reflects our own world. Yes, here tonight we are wonderfully huddled together for a few hours on a Sunday night and how good that is. I reckon uh, gatherings like this, they're, they're a taste of the world to come. A taste of the new creation. I mean, how good was last week as we, as we gathered together singing gospel songs? How good is that? To be huddled together like that. Uh, but the rest of the time, life is not like that, is it? We are scattered uh, away from here, but more importantly, away from our true home in heaven where our God is. Scattered from each other and from our God in the midst of a world that, uh, well, is no friend of the one we love, Jesus. And so this is a letter for us too. A letter that calls for faith in the fray of life, in real life. No, we're not under persecution as they were, not many of us and not yet. But we are still, aren't we, trying to walk this life of faith in a world that crashes against that faith again and again. And so our God speaks to us tonight uh, with urgency and out of great love with this call. You see it there in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one, he says, who perseveres under trial. Because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. This wonderful crown we saw in verse 4. Maturity, completeness, lacking nothing. He is working in all things to get us there. How good is that? And so having laid that agenda before us, what James is going to do throughout this letter is he's going to show us, firstly, how to persevere in faith. How can I do that? And then also what that actually looks like in the details of our lives. 
And so tonight we begin uh, here in the rest of chapter one with the, the how question. How do we persevere by faith? Well, at its simplest, it is this. Have a look at verse 22. You see it there. This is the simple answer to how. By not merely listening to the word, the word our God speaks to us, but doing what it says. And we're going to count for a fair while in uh, these verses 22 to 25 tonight. We're going to see the how of this call to persevere. And then uh, we're going to finish by seeing two implications of that for the way we live. And so here it is, verses 22 to 25, the simple instruction, how don't just listen, do what it says. I mean, it is the Bible's uh, message at its simplest from beginning to end. There it is. Don't merely listen to the word, verse 22, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Verses 22 to 25 are right at the heart of James' pastoral concern in this letter, why he is writing to these believers. What he is saying to us here in these verses is that the word of God spoken to us as it is right now hasn't been accepted by us until we are humble enough to take the word we have heard and actually do what it says. And so let me ask you tonight as we look at this passage, are you humble enough? Are you humble enough to hear and heed the word your God speaks to save you, to grow you to maturity? We have to uh, be humble enough to trust him. Trust that the word he is speaking is what I need to hear right here, right now in this place. It is as the psalmist declares in in Psalm 119. He says it again and again. I love your word, he says. But not just because it's as sweet as honey, not just because it's entertaining, but because it's my life, he says. If I don't hear that word, I won't survive. Are you that humble before the word? Are you that desperate to hear your God speak? We haven't humbly accepted the word as we're called to do in verse 21 until we have not merely listened to it. No, we have to do what it says. And I reckon as we zoom in on these verses together, I reckon this has huge implications for the way we approach a a sermon on a Sunday or our discussions in our small groups or even our own time in the word. As I do that, as I encounter my God speaking to me, am I humble enough to do what he is saying? Well, here's the thing, and this may make us feel uncomfortable, but I reckon it is our failure to humbly heed this command uh, that is the reason in a community like this, and we're not unusual, some will go on to maturity and some will stand still. Now consider if you've been part of this church family for a while, consider uh, for those of you who have been part of this church family, say, for the last 40 years, Or if that's too long for you, maybe the last four years or even just the last four months. No, we've been here together uh, for whatever length of time it is. We've sat here, we've heard sermon after sermon, Sunday by Sunday, the same sermons we've heard. Uh, Some in that time have grown incredibly. Uh, Some a little. And some, well, not at all. And the difference... Well, I put it to you, it is our willingness to humbly heed the word that we have heard. And so let me ask you again, are you humble enough to not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but to do what it says? Because that is God's wise means to grow you to maturity, to make you like his son. How often he speaks to us here. 
How blessed we are, I think, as a church family. Sermons, small groups, church family prayer. Every time we gather, the word is heard. It's a bit like, I think, the, you know, the parable of the sower, that picture of the seed of the word being cast out onto the field again and again, extravagantly, wastefully. There's sort of so much wastage built into that process, isn't there? Because God knows that in this world, uh, beset by trials, uh, how hard it is to not merely listen, but to actually do what he's saying. And so he speaks and speaks and speaks like a patient father whose constant ambition is to make you more like his son. And so let me ask you again, are you humble enough to hear and heed this word? Now I'm not asking you, are you a Bible person? Uh, Are you you someone who can delight in the word? You delight being surrounded by the word, a, a student of it perhaps. I'm not asking, are you a conference junkie? Are you someone who loves the word so much that midway through a talk at New Word Alive, you can tweet about what you've just heard? I'm not asking, is your iTunes library full of old Tim Keller sermons? Or is your shelf full of Martin Lloyd-Jones tapes? No, I'm not asking, are you a fan of God's word? I'm asking, do you do what it says? And it is such a vital question because to be merely a listener, a fan, is verse 22. Do you see it there? Self-deception. You see, if the word of truth that God speaks to us, the word about his son, Jesus Christ, our saviour, is the power God is using to bring about your salvation and a summons to obey that king, well, failing to heed that word means that you haven't even heard it. He speaks a word of promise, of command, of redemption, of call to change. To fail to do what he says is to have failed to have heard the only word that is spoken in this universe that was spoken out of love to save you. You ever known that experience when somebody has spoken a clear and present word to you that is designed for your rescue and you're just not even, you're not going to heed it. Well, let me give you an example of this. I've mentioned this years ago. I have a friend called Scott. And once we went camping together, a few of us went camping, and at the end of the day's hiking, we'd ended up on not a great spot to camp, on top of a mountaintop on the edge of a cliff. But there we were, and we'd camped there, and we'd set up the fire, and we'd got through all the firewood, and we'd run out. So Scott, being a sort of outdoorsy guy that he is, decided he'd go and search for more firewood. And so Greg and I, we were sat there chatting, we chatted by the campfire and then five minutes later, no Scott, ten minutes later, no Scott, and we're thinking he's really keen to get lots of wood. And eventually, uh, eventually we sort of grow silent, starting to worry about Scott, and you hear faintly in the distance his voice calling our names. And we try to work out where it's coming from, and eventually we worked out just above the campsite was a sort of a lookout over this cliff, but not the sort of tourist lookout with the nice fence and the sort of the telescope to look through, but just a sort of a sheer cliff face. And we get to the top, we can't see Scott still, and then eventually we sort of peer over the edge, and there, a few feet down, a sort of on one of those trees that you sort of see in cartoons that sort of stick straight out the side of a cliff, there is Scott hanging to this tree on the edge of this cliff with one arm, and in his other arm, he's got the firewood. (laughs) And so there are Greg and I sort of peering over this cliff saying, now, Scott, firewood is important and it would be nice to be warm, but I think it would be better 
if you dropped the firewood and reached up and we could lift you up. Now, I suspect it was the fear of the moment and just being just so traumatised by almost falling off this cliff that it took ages to convince him to let go of the firewood, the patently obvious thing to do. I reckon that's what God is driving at here. How many times has he spoken to us the obvious thing? Here is a God who is committed to our good and says, heed my word. We're too busy gripping onto the wood thinking we've got a better plan. Now, James makes the point by uh, his own illustration in verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and and immediately forgets what he looks like. Uh, His look, this person, however long it might be or however often he looks, well, it's superficial, isn't it? Ever known that experience? Treating a sermon or a small group discussion as, well, maybe just Christian entertainment. Heard great things tonight. Maybe the sort of things we've been talking about in these weeks, namely that God is working through all things, even the trials of my life, to bring me to maturity and completeness. We hear that. We hear the wonder of his purpose that I'm going to be like his son. How good is Jesus? I'm going to be like him. And five minutes later, the the weight of that, the sheer weight of that purpose is just lost. Verse 23 literally says this, uh, the one who merely hears the word is like the one who sees his natural face. That is uh, sort of the face of his birth. It's the the face of uh, verse 18 where we saw we have been given new birth. Uh, We see what James is saying here is that uh, this is the person who sees what God has made them in Jesus. This new creation sees that they are being grown up to look like him, sees that, sees the wonder of it, and well, simply forgets as the reality of the world hits. And don't tell me you haven't felt that. And it's important to note here that when James says forgets what he looks like, he's not talking about a sort of a mental forgetfulness. I remember preaching on this passage in my very first year of, uh, of Bible college and the illustration I used at about this point in the passage was uh, that we're a bit like goldfish. You know, We've got a short attention span of about three seconds and the goldfish comes around, sees the castle again and goes, ooh, castle. <laughs> that that's what we're like. And I think we all know that experience with the word of God that we hear it on Sunday night and then by Monday we can't actually remember what was said. But actually what's being driven at here is something far more profound. We may forget chapter and verse of sermons or specific small group discussions or things that we read in our personal devotions, but we don't forget the shape of God's word to us, do we? We don't forget his character. That builds up as we read his word, his ways, his promises. We don't forget the very heart of the gospel, his cross, his resurrection, his promise to make all things new. We don't forget that. We're not goldfish. No, the forgetfulness here is not a mental forgetfulness it's a heart forgetfulness now, this is how James will describe it later in his letter this is the sort of forgetfulness that we express it's like the forgetfulness an unfaithful husband shows he doesn't forget he's married he doesn't forget his wife's name he doesn't forget how precious his marriage is he doesn't forget the vows or any of those things he chooses to forget the value of them He chooses to forget the promise. Can you imagine that moment? And don't pretend you can't. 
because that is exactly what James 4 verse 4 will say to us. That's how it would describe our attitude, our response to God's word. We see who he is. We see who he has made us in Jesus, see his good purpose for us. We see uh, that he who promised those things is faithful. But there in the sort of the grubby fray of the moment of life, we turn aside from those things and abandon them for some cheaper price, which in that moment seems such a better option. Forgetfulness, verse 24, is when, well, we, we don't want to remember. Because there in the moment, we think it is better to forget who we are. But, and here's what we're being called to, verse 25. The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in all he does. Let me ask you, have you ever looked into something, uh, examined it over and over again just for the joy of it? That looking into it, examining it, finding out more about it is just so good that every time you look at it, it's wonderful. You got things like that in your life? Uh, let me give you a, a sort of a silly example in my life, but uh, it's something I've looked at time and time again, and it is the last over of the 1999 One Day Cricket World Cup, Australia versus South Africa. Amazing moment. I remember it very vividly, three o'clock in the morning, watching it from Sydney. Uh, there we were, Australia versus South Africa. One over left, South Africa need nine runs in the last over. I think it's pretty even at the start. In comes Damien Fleming off the long run and there's the South African batsman, Lance Klusner. First ball, smack, four. I think it's not going so well so far. Back goes Damien Fleming to rethink his plan and bowls the exact same ball, smack, four. Okay, so here we are, four balls left, one run they need to win. That's all they need to win and we're gone. We're out of the competition. The next ball, he comes in and there's a sort of a flurry of activity and they almost get run out. It was almost a glorious victory for Australia. And then I, I'm almost about to turn the TV off and he comes in to bowl the next ball and it happens again. And Lance Klusner is run out. And I was so excited about it, I rang my father who was on the other side of the world in the middle of a meeting just to inform him of what had happened. <laughs> I have watched that 50 seconds of footage on YouTube so many times. I looked it up this afternoon just to check it was still there. It's been watched 200,000 times. I reckon I'm about half of those. <laughs> well, let me ask you, have you ever looked into something just for the joy of it? Because it's so good. Have you ever felt that way about God's word of promise, his purposeful word to you? Now, that's what we're being called to here. God in this chapter has shown you his heart's desire for your life. I want you to be mature and complete and not lacking anything. And I'm working through all things to bring that about. It's wonderful. It's a bit like I remember reading uh, the, the account of those who discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. And there they were as they were heading towards the inner chamber. And one of them had gone ahead and the, the one who was behind was shouting out, Do you see anything? And I think it was Howard Carter who'd gone into the, in the very centre of the chamber it was all dark and he said, all I could say to him is, I, I see wonderful things. Well, I reckon that's our response to everything the gospel holds for us. Consider the wonderful things God has spoken to you in his word that we saw a couple of weeks ago. That he is making you like his son. You will be fearless 
when you see him face to face, totally assured of his love, no shadow of regret or shame or envy. You'll be utterly glad in him for you will be like him and you will be good. How our world is rubbish, that word, good, but you will be good as Jesus is good. No stain inside you, no hint of greed or depravity or self-absorption or duplicity, no more sin. You'll be like him. And so, verse 25, the doer of the word looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, which is just James's way of saying the word of God. We'll talk more about the law in the coming weeks. Sees in that word what they've been called to become and perseveres towards it. I reckon to look intently like that requires for us a sort of a Copernican revolution in our minds and our hearts, where our worldview is so changed that it revolves around our God and his purposes for us rather than ourselves and our plans. And so do you approach the word that way? Well, let this be a term that we do. What's being called for here is very simple. Uh, Let me encourage you, for instance, to, to make James your project, this term, to look intently into James. And maybe you could have the project of reading the whole letter once a week. If you read it every day, that's three minutes a day. And that's if you read it slowly. Now read it intentionally. Not as one who forgets. Join the project that God is on in your life. Ask questions. And what is this passage telling me about my God? What, what is it telling me about myself? What promises are here? What commands are here that I have to heed? Now here's my guarantee. If you do that, his word will speak into your life. I've been in James since early January when we started our sabbatical. I'm entering my fifth month in this short letter. And you know what? Over that time, God has sized me up and nailed me down. He knows me through and through and he is speaking this word straight into my life. Saying things I might not want to hear but are so good. Well, let us be a church that looks intently into the word of God. And over time, what will happen is that each of us and together, we will have, if you like, like a storehouse, a a treasure trove of God's word to bring into our lives. You ever known anyone like that in your life who has so looked intently into God's word for so long that every time you speak to them, they bring you to that word? There's a lady in this church just like that. Every time I speak to her, whatever it is, there she is. She brings me back. Back to this word. Well, let us be that for each other. And do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so just for a few minutes as we move towards a close, let me give you, show you that by way of two examples. Let me show you the difference between being someone who forgets and someone who looks intently. And we'll look at each of these briefly, but here's the first of them. It's in verses 9 to 12. If you are someone who forgets, then the rise and fall of human life will be for you a fearful experience. You remember the experience of these first readers? So much reason they had to be afraid, ripped from comfort and familiarity in Jerusalem, all of that gone. Now the sense of loss and powerlessness would have been immense. And now under pressure, exploited, we're told in this letter, hauled before the courts by the rich, slandered, Life was like this roller coaster. It had all been good and then suddenly crash. And isn't life like that? This side of heaven? 
are beset with trials that we face that come upon us when we don't expect them. The highs and the lows of life. Life can feel a bit, a bit like being on a ladder where we're on different rungs. And sometimes we feel we're right at the bottom rung, right at the basement. It can be all sorts of things. It can be money stresses that will be very real for many here. Or health concerns. Or career problems, unemployment. Or relationships, marriage struggles. And you get to that feeling when you're on the bottom rung and when you know you're on the bottom rung is you sort of think, I should be somewhere else. Or you look around and you see where others are and you wish you were there. And you think, will I ever get out of this? Or you grow in envious fear as you see what others have. Now we can view life like a ladder. My completeness is measured by how many rungs I am up that ladder. Or the exact opposite, we can be at the heights Everything going well, but we're so afraid that it will go. We all know what it is like to be buffeted by such things in our world. What would it look like to be someone who doesn't forget? Well, here it is, verse 9. The one on the bottom rung, the one in humble circumstances, should boast in their high position. For here you have your life conforming to the pattern set by the one you have placed your faith in. Uh, Jesus himself, who was humiliated, Philippians 2 says. The man uh, on the low rung, the poor man, it speaks of in verse 19. To not forget, to hear and heed, is to be someone who, even on that bottom rung, when everything is falling apart, is confident that he should persevere in faith. That will mean that his current humiliation will give way to exaltation, as it did for the one he follows. And the one who is rich, well, verse 10, he must look beyond his current status. That will go even as he goes about his business. He must look for his eternal status, the one we saw back in verse 4. But let me say, if you forget, if you set aside God's spoken purposes, you will be a slave to fear as to where you are in that equation. And the difference between the person whose heart is fixed on God's purpose for them, verse 4, and the heart that's fixed on some other prize, being a little higher up that rung, the difference is enormous. Uh, Let me talk to you about two people. Firstly, Kate, that's not her real name. And don't try and guess who it is. She's not here. She's very dear to me, but she's not here. Uh, She is a woman who's lived a great life in many ways. Uh, had the most wonderful marriage, most wonderful marriage. She and her husband were thick as thieves, best friends. In fact, they were their only friends. They, were, they loved spending time together so much. But when she lost her husband a couple of years ago, uh, almost instantly for her, life was over. Uh, when I last spoke to her, she described her life like this. I get up as late as possible and I go to bed as early as possible so that my days are as short as possible because I have nothing to live for, now he's gone. That's what happens when you forget. And then there is Ken. Ken, that is his real name, and he was part of this congregation for many years. When I met him in his last days of life, the exact opposite was happening. Here was a man who wasn't, uh, even though his whole physical body was falling apart in all ridiculous amount of ways, When I met him uh, in a a bed in a a care home, there was almost nothing in the room but this bed. He he spent his days, he told me, reciting hymns that he'd memorised from childhood. 
hymns of this purpose, hymns of these plans that God has for us. And when I saw him in his last days in Northern General, again, it was a man who was more alive than any of us here in this room. That's the difference between forgetting and being someone who hears and heeds these words. And finally, let me uh, give you one last illustration of this, verse 13. That is, if you forget, then you'll be someone who comes to question God's motives in your life. You see there, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. What makes verse 13 so difficult, I think, for us as we, as we look at it, is this word temptation here in verse 13 is the exact same Greek word that's translated trials back in verse 2. It's only the context that helps us know the difference. Actually, this, this double use of this same word it helps us to see what James is driving at here. Here's what he's saying. A trial uh, becomes a temptation for us. When we're hit by something in life, it becomes a temptation when it finds in us a desire to go a different way to the way God would have us go. That is, the very same trial that we might face can either lead to us putting deeper roots of faith in Jesus and his word to us and so becoming mature or withering those roots and leading to sin. Each trial has those choices before us. And so James warns us, if we're tempted by such trials, don't say God is tempting me. God may test us, as it says in verse 3, and he does that to prove our faith, that is to bring it to fullness. We must be naive if we think he won't test us for our good. But although God may do this to prove our faith or lower our pride, he never does it to induce sin or destroy our faith. And so when we face trials... Uh, we must not lay the blame at God's feet when it turns into temptation. God is through and through good. He is utterly committed to our good, we're told in this passage. He is more committed to it than we are. Now, if we're going to uh, think about temptation leading to sin, we better put the blame where it belongs. You see it there in verse 14. We love being blame shifters when it comes to things that happen in our life that lead us to doubt God. Now, we've done it since uh, the beginning. Uh, Garden of Eden, uh, there was the man when, when God asked him, why did you eat that fruit from the tree? He says it was the woman's fault. And the woman, when asked, why did you eat the fruit from the tree? It's the snake's fault. We love passing the blame. As it was then, so it is for us. The blame comes. Here's where the blame should be. Verse 16, 14 or 15, sorry. When we are deceived by the old, old lie that Satan always tells, that is, that there is a better good than what God has purposed for you. And so sin and temptation comes when we reject God's purpose for us. We forget because we think we know better. But as Proverbs 16 says, there's a way that seems right to us, but in the end it leads to death. And so verse 14, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Did you see the difference between being someone who forgets and being someone who hears and heeds? The one who forgets, do you see the the growth that happens? It's sin leading to death. Remember what uh, birth God was trying to bring about in 118? New birth leading to maturity and life. They're two very different paths, aren't they? That is the difference between forgetting 
and hearing and heeding. And so as we close, um, uh, let me say this, uh, let me quote Merlin the magician speaking to King Arthur. He simply said this, it is the curse of man that he forgets. And tonight I think we've seen how true that is. And James will keep rounding on this instruction all the way through this letter to hear and heed God's word. For he knows this is how God is bringing about his good purpose in our lives. Uh, James is going to be full of these implications. We've looked at two very briefly, full of implications that will trace the marked difference between the shape our life will take if we do hear and heed and the shape it will take if we hear and simply forget. It's going to be so helpful for us. He will expose our attitudes and behaviours that to us seem innocuous. Favouritism, playing favourites, our plans for the future, our selfishness, our getting angry and frustrated, and especially our speech. That's what he'll nail most of all. And we'll see that these things all come from hearts that are prone to, well, forget. Forget who we are by faith. Forget what God is doing in all things. And how easily we are captivated by smaller desires than his for us. By things we are convinced that having them would be for our good. That's where we see how slow we are to listen to our good and wise God and how quick we are to forget. Now James will leave us feeling this, I hope, desperately needing to hear and heed this word. Seeing how much we need our hearts renovated by our God. Our desires realigned to his. And wonderfully, we will hear this promise for, from him when we feel that way. He gives more grace, for that's exactly what he longs for and what he promises to do if we are humble enough to hear and to heed his word. Well, let's pray. Father God, we know we have heard your word tonight, this simple instruction, command that you give us time and time again in the scriptures to not only hear what, uh, listen to what you have said, but to actually do it. And we know the danger that lies for us outside of this gathering as life comes upon us, as other desires come in. And we pray that you would protect us. Give us this grace that you have promised to be those this week who receive this word humbly and knowing that it will save us. And so we pray this for our good and your glory. Amen.